Kevin, I thought I'd put you on the spot a little bit today. Again? <laughs> Bring it on, Mike. Good I love just getting love just getting you started and letting you go. Oh, and I just no. can sit back and learn and listen and enjoy. But you know, there uh I I'm thinking about um great jazz musicians. Thinking about uh, well, first of all, one of the one of the essential characteristics of jazz is the individuality of it all. So the great players all have their own styles. Now, um, you talk my, my uh, as a as a struggling pianist, uh, I know enough to uh, to be able to appreciate the greats. Uh, and you are my favorite jazz pianist. There's a few other guys I'm, out I'm, there too. Let's, that... let's get that straight. I'm your favorite jazz pianist in this stream right now. <laughs> no, who's playing right now? And I know a lot of other people who say uh, this. That's really kind, <laughs> Mike. But uh, your level of achievement, accomplishment, obviously, is extremely, extremely high. And I thought about, uh, you know, how your style is unique to you. I remember when we first met. And I was listening to you, and I said something. I met you after a set, and I said, man, you remind me of Bill Evans. And you said, gee, I, I hope not. I hope I just remind you of me. And, and it, your, your style, obviously, is uniquely yours. And I was thinking, so does that apply to you know other great jazz musicians? And I thought we might talk a little bit about the different styles like, for example, like, uh, how does a Bill Evans differ from an Oscar Peterson? Wow, that's interesting. So styles of people. Uh, by the way, I, I've, I've matured a little bit. When someone comes up to me and tells me they, I sound like Bill Evans or someone, I just say thank you. <laughs> you, you know, because that's not, you know, I know you meant it. As, I don't remember that conversation, but I'm sure... <laughs> I know what now that I know you better, I know how much you love Bill Evans. What a nice compliment, you know, to offer to me. You, you know, I, I, I got involved with jazz. I discovered it my senior year of high school, 1985. It took me uh, two to three years to like really fall in love with it and then decide that's all I wanted to do. But it's an interesting time for me to get started in jazz because early 80s, late 70s, early 80s has kind of been the low point for jazz historically when it was the least, having the, la the least um, amount of gigs and performances and recognition for things. There's been a couple of books written about the 80s calling it the, the jazz renaissance, where jazz kind of came back from, from some different things. And What's unique about that for me is that when I first started playing it and being interested in it, number one, I was able to be around some of the greatest musicians ever, you know, especially when I moved to Florida, just because they were moving away from high cost places and coming down to the South, et cetera. But overwhelmingly, everyone at that point, the entire point of playing jazz was to be yourself. It was, of, of course, you're supposed to understand Charlie Parker and Louis Armstrong and Chet Baker and Herbie Hancock, whoever your idols are. You're supposed to be informed on these other people's styles and how they play. But it was a given 
that you're supposed to play like yourself. You never get on stage and imitate one of the other people because that would be disrespectful. And that was what attracted me, you know, to this music. I, I think my, my, my classical teacher who meant the most to me, Ruth McDonald, which I've mentioned several times in these podcasts, she, um, I think she figured out I should play jazz before I did because I kept tinkering with the classical pieces. But, you know, one of the reasons she was open-minded to it was she had unusually small hands. Her pinkies were only like an inch long. And her whole her whole childhood, people told her she shouldn't be a pianist. There's no way she could do it with her hands were so small. She got a doctorate from Juilliard, a brilliant pianist. But in order to play the the larger pieces of repertoire, like Rachmaninoff or whatever, that that you would think require big hands, she would have to adapt the music, you know, to what she could execute. And I think that made her very open-minded to jazz and these ideas of it, you know. Um, if we're going to go back to Oscar Peterson versus Bill Evans, you know, I mean, there's an age difference. Oscar Peterson grew up in Toronto and, you know, his idols were Art Tatum and Nat King Cole. And he brought that with him to a, when he started playing in America through jazz at the Philharmonic. Those were his primary influences. And if you listen, he doesn't sound like either of them. But if you listen closely, you can discern that within his playing. You know, there's a great clip of him being interviewed by um, Dick Cavett. It's on YouTube now, where he talks about Art Tatum and Nat King Cole and, and says specifically what he got from them. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Bill Evans, um, you know, he talked a lot about, you know, the people he admired. And uh, number one of those is the, is the bebop pianist Bud Powell that Bill Evans loved. He also loved classical music very much, classical literature and stuff. And you can hear all of this in Bill's playing as well. So to a certain degree, a lot of the individuality comes out of like who they were influenced by. Uh-huh. But you know, Mike, when, when, when I talk about this with students at the university, um, I'll ask them uh, a question that, it, I've discovered it's not so obvious to them anymore. I'll ask them, hey, you just got back from Thanksgiving. So um, do you talk more like your mother or more like your father? And they'll always pick one. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, because keep in mind, we're talking about 17, 18, 19-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. I'll say, oh, so you talk a lot like your father when you're home. They said, yeah. I said, do you do you have the same opinions that he has? And they'll be like, no. No. <laughs> You know, there's this thing about, like, what you're playing is not necessarily the same as how you're playing it. Mm -hmm. So even though Oscar Peterson loved Nat King Cole, you're never going to mistake the two of them and their playing. But you can hear how Oscar articulates and plays certain neat things like Nat King Cole. You know, one of the things that I love about Bill Evans is how tender he can sound. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've, I've got a couple of Oscar Peterson recordings from the late 60s uh, where he plays as tender as anyone. 
you know, it's, and I have Bill Evans recordings of him swinging as hard as anyone. Mm-hmm. There's this funny quote. Um, I only, I've never, I've only read it in print, but someone asked Bill Evans, this guy interviewing him, asked him, I, I noticed you, you, and the guy is from Europe. I know that he asked him, he says, I noticed that you don't record blues very often on your records. And Bill Evans says, I'm a white guy from Jersey. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, which is funny. Miles My- Davis famously said that Oscar Peterson plays the blues like he had to learn learn what the blues was or is, <laughs> you know, because he's from Canada, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think, you know, people mistakenly think playing with your own identity means that you're you're coming from nowhere. Like you're just being yourself and you don't study the thing. And they seem to do this more in music. I know, I mean, you're a writer, a great writer. You're the best writer in this stream. Come on, that was funny. <laughs> I, I know that great writers are also great readers and they have their fame, their favorite authors, you know, and, but the, you would, you would never write a book in the same style as one of your heroes. No, but Correct? to your point, I do. Uh, I, I talk to people who are aspiring writers, young people and older people who are decided they, after they retired, they want to write a book or something. And I, I tell them one of the best ways to become a better writer is to read great writing. Uh, not that you, like you say, not that you're going to imitate uh, Hemingway or Faulkner or, or Waugh or anybody, but, but that influence of seeing, of reading something really brilliantly done uh, can't help but uh, help you out. It can't help but influence you, can't help but give you um uh, nothing else good vibes to work from so so what who were who are some of the people that uh as you became you know as a as a young person you became passionate uh about jazz obsessed with jazz uh who were some of the the pianists that you uh listened to that you liked most that might have uh you know influenced you more than others well, well, I'll answer that. But first, I got to say, a lot of my biggest influence are not pianists. You know, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Louis Armstrong, Billy Holiday, um, Lester Young, they blow my mind. And I've gotten specific things from all of them. Um, pianist, um, a little bit of everyone, I've, you know, I've, I've had a love affair with a whole series of pianists, but um, two that stand out the most to me, I think, would be, first of all, Ahmad Jamal, who does not play the piano like any other person anywhere. And the funny thing is he went to high school in Pittsburgh, the exact same high school as the only other pianist as unique as him. Errol Gardner, he was four years behind Errol Gardner. Both of them, uh, you you know, everything about their playing. It's not just their style, the way they organize. All of all of the way the group plays together is uniquely theirs. And um, I love the first album I made, but it's 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 very clearly Ahmad Jamal influenced. Maybe uh-huh. even a little too much, but it doesn't <laughs> matter. 
Um, I, no one's going to mistake me from Ahmad Jamal on that. But <laughs> so what, what about his what about his style? I mean, what can you talk a little bit about Ahmad Jamal's uh, style, his approach? Well, you know, he's he's completely different than bebop players in that there's no solo section. A bebop musician will play the melody of the song, maybe with an arrangement, and then they'll solo over the chord progression of the song for many choruses. Maybe the bass player or a saxophone player will do the same. And then they'll play the melody out again. But Ahmad Jamal's, all, it's a trio. Him, uh, Vernal Fournier on drums, Israel Crosby on bass. It's his most famous trio, although the other ones are great too. But basically, all three are composing their parts from the beginning to the end. And you can listen to it and think that it's a deeply organized arrangement when actually it's organic and completely democratic the way the three of them play. Now, Ahmad Jamal is a virtuoso. The way he touches the piano, the way he, he, the way he touches and makes tones, it's uniquely his. But what really pulled me in was his concept of inclusion of everyone playing and how completely, utterly committed to his way of playing he is. There's really was nothing else like it. Um, I'm not the only one influenced by him. Everyone was. But most importantly, yeah. Miles Davis, deeply, deeply influenced by Ahmad Jamal and all the standards that Miles plays, Green Dolphin Street, Autumn Leaves, All of You, all these songs, my, even my Fine Valentine, uh, come from Ahmad Jamal. You know, he he had a funny quote about Ahmad. He said, he, I wish I could do the voice, but he said something along the lines of, one day I'm going to have a kid with yellow hair and green eyes and purple skin, um, and he'll play piano like Ahmad Jamal. <laughs> That's his quote. The other, the other guy I'm profoundly in love with still is um, pianist who's not as well known now as he should be is this guy Marcus Roberts, who is a, a blind pianist. I heard him play with um, with Wynton Marcellus, and again, the thing I like about him, first of all, he's a virtuoso. I mean, he plays the piano as well as any, any human being. He's one of the great living pianists. Um, his mastery of everything is great, but he has this deep level of blues in his playing without ever playing a cliche lick. He has his own blues vocabulary. It's mm -hmm. He knows the cliches, but he moved past that into something profoundly his own. Um, he got hired to play with Wynton Marsalis' group to replace another very famous pianist who I also dearly love, named Kenny Kirkland. And Marcus tells the story that to prepare for the gig, because um, there's no rehearsals, you just get called and you show up and you have to know the music. So he learned all of the recordings. By the way, Marcus Roberts is blind. So he learned all of the recordings um, by ear. He learned all of Kenny Kirkland's piano parts and solos and everything. And after they played the first gig, he asked Winton, so did I okay? Did I do okay? And Winton says, man, if I want King Kirkland, I'll just hire him back. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> in fact, when I met Marcus Roberts, I went to hear, um, went and play at um, at Emory University here, and I was I was really disappointed because I thought it was going to be Kerry Kirkland, and it was this guy I'd never heard of Marcus Roberts, but boy, he changed my life that day. He played so with so much emotional content and individuality. Um, now I didn't sleep, you know. Um, Winton's music has certainly positively influenced me and, and most jazz musicians of my generation, you know, but in, in particular, Winton himself, I, I saw him give a clinic once at Jazz Educators Convention, and he, he said emphatically the highest achievement in all music is to play like yourself, to create like yourself, you know. I always like this advice that Brahms would give young composers. I think it was Brahms. He would say, don't try to write something new. Try to write something like yourself. You know, it's not just a jazz idea that the importance of individuality in what we're doing, because all of the great classical composers or folk musicians or any of the pop musicians, what really makes them stand out is they don't sound like anyone else. You can hear, you know, hear where they're coming from. I always, I always like to mention to, you know, university students, because you know, Mike, it's a conundrum for some of us. We we want to learn how to play, and we know we're supposed to learn by by studying how other people have done it. But that often seems at odds with the idea of playing like yourself. It's just that's a lot harder. You have to think of music like a language, and you're learning the way the grammar and sentence structures and spelling of things happen, but then you have to tell your own story. And, you know, when we think about jazz musicians who are considered like the the, the most important innovators, whether we're talking about uh, Louis Armstrong or Charlie Parker, Ornette Coleman, whoever you want to pick, they all had mentors that they imitated. Louis Armstrong famously, his mentor was King Oliver, the Joe King Oliver, who brought him up to Chicago to play in the 20s. And um, Louis learned King Oliver's playing so well that he could, King Oliver could, could, could improvise a solo and Louis could harmonize it in real time. Like he could predict what Joe was going to play. And then they made some shtick out of this. Louis would put the handkerchief over his hand. I mean, over over King Oliver would put the handkerchief over his hand to show that Louis wasn't like copying the fingerings or something. <laughs> There's a similar story about Charlie Parker when he lived in Kansas City. His saxophone mentor, I believe his name was Buster Cooper, um, had a steady gig playing on the radio every Friday night with the band that eventually becomes the Count Basie band. And... Um, one night he got some better paying gigs, so he subbed it out to his student, Charlie Parker. And Charlie Parker played the gig. And then the next week, Buster Cooper's walking around 28th and Vine in Kansas City, and people are saying, Buster, you sound better than ever last night. <laughs> of course, they were talking about Charlie Parker. <laughs> right. If you're living your life as a musician, you want to express your own feelings and understandings. Even if it's not jazz, whether it's, you know, it's just to sing James Taylor songs, but I certainly didn't sing them like James Taylor. I sang them like me. And I think that's what kind of got me through 
uh, my years on the road and my years playing uh, as a full-time musician uh, is that people came to hear me. They didn't come to hear a copy of uh, James Taylor or Paul Simon or people like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, but I, I, I get it, though, in terms of it's terrifying to get up and perform from your heart, like what you deeply feel. And it's so much safer to do a cover sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if you play it note for note, because if someone doesn't like it, you can say, well, I guess they don't like James Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of courage, and I find in my own teaching with adults that one of the big rewards of playing music is kind of a, a self-healing thing where you can learn that what you want to express is just as good as anyone else's if it's authentically your own. 